0: You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: A hey, tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan, is in the house. If you've got a question, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 288 Three nine eight six. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is one 271 2985 And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 271 2985 You can always uh, send us an email, openline at ewtn.com. Or you can text your question to Colin, text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response, text your first name and your question, message, and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubenski and Jeff Burson, handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, is he is every Friday, the aforementioned Colin Donovan. How are you?
2: I'm doing pretty good.
1: There's a like a microphone thing. I know you're just getting started in radio. It's your first uh, broadcast and everything. But yeah. If we yeah, pull that was, mic up there, it'll make for a better show.
2: It probably will. <laughs> hey, so what did I? Ask I'm getting you? acclimated to not being at home with my little. Well, like there you go. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good what point. What is this monstrosity? That's okay.
1: Here? I'll cut, I'll I'll cut you some slack for that very reason. That's a good uh, good one. Um, so um, you know, it's a it's kind of an interesting week. Did you have your throat blessed?
2: Not yet. I need Not to yet. get that done.
1: Yeah, Feast of St. Blaise was yesterday, uh, where there's a blessing uh, uh, of the throat associated with uh, the Feast of the Martyr St. Blaise, with candles used from the blessing of candles at Candlemas the day before on the Feast of the Presentation of Our Lord. And it, uh, it is all rotated, and it usually is because of when those feast days fall, around the first Friday devotion, which is today, the first Saturday of the month is tomorrow, and I always one of the things when I was entering the church that I wasn't familiar with as a Protestant that became more apparent to me is the the beauty and the rhythm of the liturgical calendar that is really set up in such a way as to clear the path for our salvation quite frankly.
2: It is, and I think uh, one of the blessings of the modern era, going back to modern era in Catholic terms usually means the post-Tridentine era, the Cartesian Revolution, and all those things gathered together, philosophy changed, uh, intellectual life greatly, and then of course we had the Industrial Revolution and all that. But in the modern era, one of the things especially that has been um, emphasized has been a liturgical spirituality— because that is a eucharistic spirituality the eucharist is of course the source and summit of the church's life as the second vatican council uh teaches following trent and the long tr- tradition of the church and in that uh and, and out of that source we live a life that is around the christian mystery not only the mystery of christ but the mystery of christ's action in the world Uh, That signified, uh, certainly, we have the mystery of Christ in the great feasts of Christ, in the feasts of Our Lady and of St. Joseph, which is coming up next month, because that is the incarnational order. These are the the individuals associated with the incarnation redemption. But the gift of grace that is given to various individuals throughout our history. Uh, And each of the saints tell us something about that mystery, the mystery of God, because each of them have different human personalities, but they magnify in a certain way a characteristic, uh, all characteristics being ultimately founded in God of, of love or justice or patience or long-suffering. And you look at all of those, uh, the, the mysteries of the life of the individual saint celebrated in the calendar, and we get a deepened sense of, uh, of how Christ interacts with history through individuals, through the church. And so the Eucharistic calendar, the liturgical calendar, uh, all of this is a way to bring our life into rhythm with that. Because if we simply follow a secular calendar, that's good for the business world, for the school and the academic world, uh, you know, for the social world and social functions and, you know, uh, whatever the hallmark holidays are and so on. But that's not ultimately our life because we are living a wayfarer's life that's destined for heaven. And all these mysteries will be recapitulated in Christ and Christ in God, as St. Paul tells us, as the book of Revelation tells us. And we're starting now. And the church speaks even of the eschatological dimension of all of this because it is all pointing to eternity, to the eschaton. Heaven, hell, death, purgatory. Uh, These things are, are mysteries of creation. Uh, of its beginning and of its end. And that is the hi- mystery of man's history, its beginning and its end, and the mystery of each individual human being's history, their beginning and their end. All summed up in Christ, who then is uh, restores the kingdom to the Father, as St. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. So it is a beautiful way to live our life around that rhythm because it's a Christ-centered life. It's a historically centered life, Christ action in history. And it's the really the preferred way, especially in the last 150 years, where there's been so much writing on this idea of Eucharistic and or liturgical piety. And they could be all thrown together because we're really talking about the same thing.
1: You know, it's interesting also... Uh... I grew up in St. Louis, which during the time, it's not so much like that anymore. But the time when I was growing up, there were basically three kinds of people in the metropolitan St. Louis area. There were Jews, Catholics, and tourists. And uh, it's not quite that way anymore <laughs> so much. But, but uh, even living in that richly Catholic yeah. tradition, it was amazing to me how much I didn't know about Catholicism when I actually started to right. actively look into it. And you know, you look at a, at a program like the Journey Home with Marcus Grody and all of these people that come from these varied faith traditions, um, other Christian traditions, non Christian traditions, and I think there's a lot. I get excited when I see some of these stories because to see the truth through the eyes of people that are seeking for it but have not yet found the fullness of it really can build an, an additional appreciation. For what Holy Mother Church has to offer, huh?
2: It really does. And another aspect of Marcus's show, The Journey Home, which uh, I've always loved, is that people coming from these district traditions, what they find in the church is not just the Christian mystery, but the human mystery, What man's long, how man's longings to be fulfilled. It's not longing in this world, a secular longing and an atheistic longing and agnostic longing. The human longing is a longing for God and a longing for eternity. And the mystery of Christ is the way that that longing is satisfied. And you'll often find, especially with intellectuals coming into the church, that it started out simply with that love of the truth, which led them in different ways and ultimately led them, not just to the mystery of Christ in the case of converts to Christianity, but it, in the case of those who were non-Catholic Christians. They're finding that both of these human and Christian mysteries the mystery of ourselves, as it were, are fully realized in the church and in the gospel uh, and in the teachings of Christ as presented by the church.
1: You know, and it's interesting too because you look at there are a lot of, of intellectuals who have have in essence read their way into the church, right. uh, oftentimes. But then there are there are cats like me that are not <laughs> that would never be confused for being an intellectual. But um, and and so sometimes I think intellectuals might view the more trivial points of our faith as less important, and I think that people who are not in academia or intellectual will find the the minute detail of some of the academic points of our faith to not be as important. But if it's important to any one individual, it's just as important as another piece to another individual.
2: Right, and I think it depends on their familiarity with the pious tradition of the church, because we have the teachings of the church. That's one thing. That which is formally taught is revealed in which we're obliged to believe. We have the theological tradition, which are are probably teachings of the church in in embryo or at different stages of theological development. But there's also the pious tradition, and that's what the the faith of the people over the centuries have, you know, have lived how they have lived that in the prayers the devotions the novenas the chaplets the rosaries uh all of these things represent the theology and represent the faith but most people are you know if they if they have a cursory and inf- familiarity with the church they're not familiar with it at those sort of uh you know down where the goats are eating <laughs> from the grass <laughs> yes. as father mitch would put it
1: yeah. Very good. Colin Donovan is in the house. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's open line Friday with Colin Donovan. Great new book out from EWTN Publishing, Spiritual Excellence, The Path to Happiness, Holiness in Heaven by Deacon Richard Eason. Uh, Deacon has prepared a practical and motivational book to help you pursue spiritual excellence and discover the abundant life our Lord is calling you to experience. This book will empower you to fly with the angels and soar with the saints so you can live a happier and holier life. And just some of the topics the deacon touches on are the most powerful weapons for restoring your soul to happiness, the keys to opening yourself to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and much, much more. That's The Spiritual Excellence, uh, The Path to Happiness, Holiness in Heaven by Deacon Richard Eason, available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. A couple of open phone lines for you and all kinds of time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. First up is Maria in Wallingford, Connecticut, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Maria, you are on with Colin Donovan. Yeah, hello. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Um, I was wondering, if you're on vacation or at a celebration on Friday... Um, is there any way to get like a dispensation from the priest from
3: abstaining from
2: meat? Well, in the United States, that's not necessary. Um, the general law of the Church is Friday is a day of a, a day of penitence and that the abstinence from meat is the form that it should take. In the United States, by uh, indult going back uh, a couple decades or more now, uh, Catholics may substitute something else for that. So In the United States, at least, a Catholic can, um, you know, can make that uh, assumption as well and say, well, this day I'm going to do uh, something else. Maybe I will, you know, say a rosary for the poor souls or maybe I'm going down to the soup kitchen tonight. I'm going to help distribute do an act of charity or another act, a different act act of penitence. And so these are the kinds of substitutions which uh, are permitted to Catholics in the United States. Now, even outside of the United States, there is a law of necessity, which is recognized, it's a law, a law of the natural law, and that is we're not obliged to do what is impossible. And in the case of the norms of the church like this, if it is impossible to fulfill it in, in the circumstances, then we may choose you know, some alternative. Uh, I forget the priest's name, but there was a, a priest who um, in, in Italy, I think he is a blessed now, hundred or so years ago, uh, a beggar came to the door and, uh, he gave him some food, brought him in and he sat him down and he gave him what was left over from, I guess, the Thursday meal. And it was a meat meal. And so the beggar wouldn't eat without the priest sitting down and eating with him as an act of charity. He chose to do it. That I think reflects the right mind of the church and of the moral theology tradition, something like that. If impossibility or an obligation of charity, uh, you know, you don't need to impose yourself on your relatives who lay out the meat meal before you. Uh, of course, you may not eat that portion, but if the, the person who cooked it is offended uh, by it and insists, then in charity to do to do so. So this is the kind of freedom in that we shouldn't feel that we are, you know, we're obliged in circumstances that we find ourselves in uh, when we don't be- believe it's possible in those circumstances to fulfill it, yeah, or some a- obligation of charity yeah. presents itself. Yeah.
1: yeah. uh pastor of the church, when I entered the, the, the parish, when I entered the church, <clears throat> was a very holy Irish priest. Uh, monsignor joe McDonald of happy memory and he often talked he would try he kept for the most part the bread and water fast of wednesdays and fridays uh, as suggested by our lady in several apparitions but he would always always emphasize he says listen you know if i have a group of people that have invited me to lunch yeah. on a wednesday i'm gonna go eat lunch with the people on wednesday <laughs> i'm not right you know yeah. yeah so they i mean common sense comes into the you
2: know, right. And I, I think bit. often we think that in these kinds of cases, obviously, in the case of the prohibitive moral law or the church's prohibitive canonical law, we shouldn't do things that are prohibited. Uh, liturgical abuses would be a good example from, from, liturg- from uh, the church's law. In moral law, thou shalt not kill. We have no excuse for doing that. There are other circumstances in which what we do might kill, but that that is understood by the, you know, by the tradition. Uh, this is a case of a positive obligation put on us by the church, who, as our mother, would not will that we break our body, our spirit, or the or the feelings of another person. In this case, uh, it's an act of charity not to do that.
1: How's that, Maria? That's great. Thank you so much. You're Mm -hmm. very welcome. We appreciate the phone call. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. John in Boise, Idaho says, "Uh, Mr. Donovan, how does the following quote from Augustine not affirm Sola Scriptura? And the quote is from On Christian Doctrine. And it says, among the things that are plainly laid down in Scripture are to be found all matters that concern faith and the manner of life.
2: Um, The church's practice doesn't conflict with that because finding can be explicit or implicit. Uh, And in fact, the church in uh, affirming certain things as being in the apostolic tradition are affirming them as revealed by God in Christ, and therefore by that means in, in what is divine revelation written or oral. So in that case, there's no conflict because it would be, you know, it would be if something were thrown in out of whole cloth. But the church doesn't affirm things as being revealed by God out of whole cloth. But usually after decades or centuries or whatever, as the curse may be, of course may be, Uh, So we have the Christological dogmas. The Church didn't declare those until what was believed by the Church was challenged. Likewise with the Marian dogmas, which always have a connection with the Christological and depend upon them. Uh, And you go down through history with the uh, things regarding the nature of the Church and the sacraments. These are all founded back in Scripture. That doesn't mean proof-texted from Scripture. Because if you got a hundred people in a room and said proof text an idea from me, I bet you'd get on the same subject many ideas, some of them in opposition to each other, because of a narrow understanding of the literal sense or some other factor that would make it, it would seem to be an impossibility that these could be reconciled. But the Church, having contemplated the Scripture, has reconciled many of these things which could be uh, raised in question of the Gospel or in uh, Christ's teaching, reconcile them such as the nature of the eucharist as the real body blood of christ uh, which was questioned in its day and christ refuted it questioned in later centuries and the church refuted it so everything is contained in scripture whether it's explicit and clear and evident to the reader on first reading or to the church after centuries of reading and contemplating this or in the tradition which represents the teaching of the apostle apostles who certainly had uh, among themselves the charism of teaching correctly what Christ taught them and expounding on its meaning and very often the meaning is found in the tradition when the uh, infer- inference of the meaning is found in scripture
1: 833 288 EWTN is our toll free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833 288 3986. Wide open phone lines for you. Um, Rick is watching us on YouTube and he says, My friend is a recent convert from being a non believer. He wants to know why pray the rosary when it is a repetitive prayer?
2: It is a repetitive prayer, but this is not what uh, Christ condemned. Uh, we have in sacred scripture we have a number of the Psalms where, for instance, uh, I forget what the Psalm number. And his great love is without end or forever. <clears throat> so the idea of a prayer with strophes which are repeated, for example, uh, they're repetitive, but there are different themes there, and you can you can you can see that in the Psalms. In the case of the rosary, there are also the themes because there are the mysteries. First of all, the words themselves are worth saying because they, they look to Our Lady, they speak of the mystery of Christ, they speak of the hour of our own death and the need of prayer for that. So the things in there are things which we're positively asking God through Our Lady uh, to, to help us with. And then there are the mysteries, which are the life of uh, Christ in relationship with Our Lady, which goes on throughout all uh, 15 and now 20, uh, 20 mysteries of the, of, of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So you have the, that which you should be meditating upon and that which is sort of the substrata underneath that meditation. And it's been found to be very helpful in, in prayer for many people. Uh, for people who don't have access to, to a, say, a high mystical theology of, you know, how to do acquired meditation, acquired meditation and disposed for contemplation and the unitive way in the prayer life. And instead, what they find with the mystery of the rosary, with the rosary, when they really enter into it, is that their understanding of the Christian mystery gets more profound and more simple And this is what its intention is for the lay person in particular but for all catholics and indeed all christians would benefit from it to meditate and deeply imbibe the life of christ and the things associated with it to contemplate those in in recognition of our own deficiencies with respect to them to grow in the love of christ because of his his great virtue and in the contempt in a way for ourselves that we might grow out of it through his great virtue. And so it is a, a, a rosary is something of prayer and penance and meditation and union with God. And that's what it's for. If it were just the repetition of prayers, done without thinking without any kind, then it would be vain superstition. But that's not what the church uh, asks us to do in the Rosary.
1: Wide open phone lines, unfettered access to our Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Anything you want to know about theology, you can call and ask what Colin's favorite color is if you want to. Uh, Wide open phone lines for you today at 833-288-EWTN. What kind of a tree would Colin be if he could be a tree and why? 833-288-3986. What was your pet's first, uh, what was your first my, pet's name?
2: Uh, my first pet's name? What was my first pet's name? I think it was Pete. It was uh, well, you're, Budgie. You,
1: well, you're locked out of all of your accounts online, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I've
2: never used that. <laughs> uh,
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan.
0: This is open line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number, eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six um gloria writes in she's in in the republic of texas and she says can i be absolved of my sins if i am not married in the church and my husband has not had his first marriage annulled by the church
2: yeah uh, that i mean that's a tricky tricky question and has circumstances to it um the general rule has been that pastorally speaking you know, if you are living celibately while you're awaiting the annulment, then yes, there's no obstacle to confession and also to communion. If you are not yet living celibately and therefore having no possibility of um, of doing otherwise, then the answer, I think, would be no. Some of this was raised into question with remarks that uh, uh, pope francis made a number of years ago with regard to his motu proprio and and other issues on mercy in those situations and the church is certainly wanting to extend mercy as, as far as possible and recognizing sort of the facts on the ground situation uh, but a lot of that depends upon the state of the conscience of the individual and that's nothing that we can judge in a phone call on, on the air or any other circumstances that's to get the advice of a solid confessor, um, you know, hopefully with the cooperation of your husband, since he's seeking an annulment, I would think he wants to, you know, to live in accordance with uh, as a Catholic with you. Uh, so uh, I would look for some generosity from him on that point.
1: 833-288-EWTN. Still plenty of time for your calls at 833 833- Gary is in Baltimore, Maryland, listening to EWTN Radio. Gary, you are on with Colin Donovan.
3: Yes, hi. Thank you for taking my call.
0: Uh, My question is, uh, I remember from back in my Baltimore Catechism days
3: the definition of a sacrament, and the definition was that it's an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace.
0: and in thinking about it, I don't
3: see where in the New Testament Christ instituted marriage. I mean, you know, the Bible talks all about people being married and everything else in the Old Testament and things like that, and I'm wondering how marriage falls under that definition.
2: Sure. Um, some of that is, I was talking at the top of the hour with the, in terms of what is implicit in what is in the Scriptures, realizing that if... If the apostles understood that it was their job to write a manual, that all future generations would look in there and find the answers to the nitty-gritty questions that are raised, like this one, or the details of all of that, it would have been quite a different book. But the circumstances were they were pastors of a flock with continuity down until the return of Christ. And so their teaching, whether handed on in tradition as St. Paul makes clear, uh, in, in, in writing or in what he has taught, is also an or a source of divine revelation because they were informed immediately and directly by Christ and therefore they have a right to speak in Christ's name and to reveal And the church then says, when that last one died, which we take to be John the Apostle, the era of Christ's revelation ended, and everything must be found in that font of deposit of the faith of Scripture and tradition. In the case of marriage, you need only go to Ephesians 5, uh, I think beginning at verse 21, to see what what is involved in marriage, that it's a sign of Christ's union with the church. The husband and the wife are a sign of Christ's union with the church. And so it speaks of it in that context. So the offering of the body, the gift of self in the matrimonial bond, is the you would say is the matter the vowing of that, the exchange of that gift, the the public statement of that before the church and therefore before Christ, since Christ equals the church and the church equals the Christ with regard to this world, that statement is then the, and the words that, that, that manifest it are then the form or the, the content of the sacrament. So, you look at the other sacraments: baptism, clearly established in Scripture; water. The Trinitarian form is given by Christ at his ascension, and so those two things together give you the matter and form. Um, confirmation is a little less clear, but it's we're speaking of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church and the giving of the uh, this uh, overwhelming the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so the church came to understand it that way you look at the anointing of the sick to take the sick to the to the elders, the priests, the presbyters uh, and if you know and, and this is where their their strength, whether for dying or for healing comes from. So all of it is there implicitly in some ways, although like many things including the doctrine of the Trinity, the elements that there's one God and three persons are, Pretty clear in the New Testament it's certainly clear in the teaching of the Apostles because those who wrote down what they said uh, who weren't themselves Apostles or their scribes like uh, Mark or others uh, meaning that second generation of of bishops they tell us this stuff explicitly and so on it goes down through history so in the case of marriage go to uh, Ephesians 5 the Catechism of the Catholic Church will uh, develops that as well. You'll find it in there. And so the nature of marriage as a sacrament. Now, we know that as a natural institution, marriage is the first human institution. We have our first parents. We have their marriage. And a lot of it is implicit in that, multiply and, and on the face of the earth so the giving of children there's something tells us something about the nature of marriage naturally is for procreation the church affirms that in its teaching but that procreation necessitates a union how are children to be be raised with you know parent one in san francisco and parent two in uh... in new york and the grandparents raising it in omaha or something no the design of God is parents with their children, raising them, socializing them, teaching them about him, and that's right there from the beginning. And that's on all part of the mystery of the church as well. And if parents see their marriage as a reflection of Christ in the church, you'd think they'd be talking a little bit about Christ in the church. So Christian marriage as a sacrament is not something distinct from the natural marriage, but it's to Christians, baptized Christians, Who seeing this great mystery and exchanging their vows, they are now going to live it because that's part of being a Christian, to live that. So the marriages of non-Catholics, non-Christians are valid, but the marriage of a baptized Christian, baptized Catholics, or Protestant for that matter, their first marriage is a sacrament. And that's why the church says that it being a sign of Christ's love for the church, the idea of divorce is unthinkable. So what the church does is not to give to grant divorce, but to look to see whether the intention was there at the beginning, whether there was a marriage at the beginning. And that's what the annulment process is. So that follows from the same theology uh, that this is a, a. a unity which is till death for the purpose of raising children, and, of course, the goals and the benefits of the unity itself has much to commend it, especially for those not of reproductive age. So all of that together is uh, what marriage is about, destined to Christ and eternal life, indissoluble by those grounds. Uh, Natural marriage uh, is dissoluble, as we know, because the Jews allowed it. Moses permitted it, as Christ says in Matthew 19. So in Matthew 19, you get an idea of the difference between the purely natural marriage of the old law and indeed of non-Jews as well, because that goes back to our first parents, but the supernatural character of marriage of two Christians, because it takes a natural marriage and it raises it up into the mystery of Christ in the church. So that's where the marital uh, sacramentality comes from. And the details of that developed over time, certainly, but from the very beginning, the church did not allow divorce. It followed the regime as Christ established in the New Testament, in the Gospels, as the apostles insisted upon, as their descendants, uh, bishops assi- insisted upon. And, of course, around that developed a theology over the course of time.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Jim in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, watching us on YouTube. Jim, you're on with Colin Donovan.
3: Hello, Colin. Um, I'm calling because uh, actually, in the di- I'm, I, I do uh, live in, around Pittsburgh. I go to the Diocese of Pittsburgh. I also go to the Diocese of Greensburg. Now there... Over time, it comes and goes, but usually when they do this practice, they do it every Sunday. They get the book of the Gospels, they elevate it, the priest, very high. He turns to the left, to the center, to the right. He They want people to bow. So um, then he goes to the roster, or to where he's going to read it. He does the same thing. When he's finished, raises it and goes to a little place where they put the, the book of the gospel, and then he comes back and gives it homily. So the thing is, it's like, I think, bibliology. I mean, I, I didn't write all this stuff down. So the thing is, um, where you're worshiping a book. Now, I, I remember somewhere I read, and it could have been Vatican II or about Vatican II, and it said the the gospel, or um, the re- the word of God, when read, is the living word of God. So, basically, what I'm my point here is this: you know, is that a practice that I I've seen it in this site it comes and it disappears for some years, it show up somewhere else, and then it disappears, mm-hmm. and somebody else picks it up.
2: Okay, um, th- the practice. There is a, a, a typical practice of that. It's very often that the book is on the, placed on the altar, typically by a deacon at the beginning of Mass, and at, at this after the ceremony of going to the priest for the bless for a blessing before reading the gospel, he will go back go to the altar, uh, accompanied or unaccompanied by acolytes and server servers, as sometimes occurs in different circumstances. Uh, he will pick it up and he will carry it some higher over their head. I was taught to carry it a little more at the chest level so you don't, you know, trip on something or drop the book. Um, but the idea is, yes, you're honoring the gospel, and now they have produced a book which has only the gospels in it because that is what is used at this time, that collection of the gospels in often a—it might be in a gold cover or have brocade or jewels on it or something— and you take it, uh, you take it to the ambo, the lectern. Uh, you incense it if it's a, if it's a solemnity, and you're in, using incense. Uh, and then you uh, go through the ceremonies that for for the reading of the gospel. And afterwards, you're you you're you're finished with it. Um, and what happens if a bishop is uh, celebrating the mass? Is that's then taken to the bishop, and everybody remains standing, and the bishop blesses well, at least with supposed the to book? Of, standing. <laughs> they're at least they're supposed to. But sometimes you don't know you don't whether remember, that yeah. you don't remember. You don't know <laughs> that's going to be done on a particular day, and you've already sat down for the homily. <laughs> it's taken to the bishop uh, for the blessing with the book of the Gospels. The idea is that in speaking of degrees of presence of Christ in the Church, obviously the Blessed Sacrament is the real presence, body, blood, soul, and divinity. Uh, There are other presences. Christ is present in the ministers who act in his name in Persona Christi, as the Church's theology and teaching says is present in the congregation who head and members form the mystical body of christ so that we speak of the mystical christ gathered to pray and the priest representing christ the head and we the members and together we worship the father with and through jesus christ uh, the one who is with the the father in heaven of course and other things get, represent that. We have uh, statues of Christ, or icons, in the, in the Byzantine churches, in the Eastern churches. Uh, and the Gospel is likewise, in that way, a representation of Christ, specifically of his word, of divine revelation in the Old and New Testament, and particularly in the case of the Gospels, of Christ himself, since that's, you know, as it were, the, uh, uh, the repository of his words on earth during his life. Uh, and that's why those, uh, that veneration is given. And veneration represents a form of reverence owed to a person, in this case who is God, uh, that is in view of that person, not in view of the object which is used to demonstrate it, in this case the book of the Gospels. So it's directed to Christ, it's not directed to the book per se, uh, except insofar as that book represents the words of Christ given in the gospel and so on. And in that reality is all of the virtue, including uh, the blessing of the congregation with it and so on. Uh, so that's the way the church understands it. It's a very human sign, and the Catholic Church is made up of all such of these kinds of human signs which tie us from the more mundane things of books and, cl- and, and uh uh... uniform and clothing such as the vestments to the the so-called smells and bells of the church's practice uh, it brings our mind and helps raise it to God in, in the greater realities of His Word and in the and especially in the person of God Himself and the three the three divine persons in in God in the divine nature and so we're raised up progressively from the more mundane and humble to the higher and greater God Himself. So all of those things serve in a very human fashion to do that, just as in Judaism. And this is why Judaism's practices although not continued in Christianity, prepare and dispose us by example as well as the reality of them for Christ and the Church's practices, the vestments or uniforms, if you will, the grades of authority, and the many other practices, even though superseded by other things is the way baptism superseded circumcision." nonetheless disposed and prepared for the New Covenant and the mysteries of the New Covenant. And so that's why we see all those things today, because Christ, through through the Jews, his own human family, handed them on to us to be used in a different way, in a new meaning, with a fulfilled meaning, in the Catholic Church, in the mysteries of the Church, in the practice of the Church. And we see that at all the many levels of practice in different ways. That's another one final thing, because sometimes this is forgotten, even by the clergy. This is why the Holy See has the authority over the liturgy, ultimately, to ensure that wherever the liturgy is practiced throughout the world, that is practiced faithfully in keeping with the teaching and doesn't teach something contrary to the teaching, incidentally or accidentally by reason of lack of knowledge of the celebrant or some other factor. Uh, So these are all very important issues because in the liturgy, we express our faith, and the faith expresses itself through the liturgy, and we we can't separate those. So whatever the rubrics say in that regard, it's best if the celebrants follow them because they're there for a purpose and they arise from a tradition.
1: You know, a lot of people like Monday nights. For various reasons, some people like Monday night because Monday's almost over. <laughs> uh, uh, some people like Monday night because during a certain part of the year, there's they know there's going to be football on television. Um, I like Monday night because it's the journey home with Marcus Grody. My favorite television program, I'm not ashamed to say, on EWTN, and I'm not afraid of offending anybody else's programs, but that's my favorite television program is The Journey Home. And this Monday at 8 Eastern, Marcus will talk with Father Guerov Shroff, who is a former Hindu. I'm anxious to get a ordained That'll priest, who is a former Hindu.s Uh, Perspective on the whole deal, and that's the journey home Monday night with Marcus Grody, eight Eastern time, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Next up for us is Logan in Boise, Idaho, listening on Salt and Light Radio. Logan, thanks so much for holding. You're on with Colin. My pleasure. Thanks for taking my call. My question. um, Yeah, I appreciate that. My question comes from the Exodus story, where God
3: tells moses to go talk to pharaoh and mm-hmm. then it mentions how uh god hardened pharaoh's heart and my question on that is
1: was the pharaoh have free will is it something he <laughs> could have chosen to do i mean how how does that phrase uh and work into the story it's a good question
2: it, it is um here's the thing which i think most Catholics don't think of very much, but having the virtue of a good uh, theological formation from Benedictines and Dominicans, uh, I have given this a good deal of thought. And that is, we don't often think, who's the Lord of history? God is. That means that he gives us our existence, he keeps us going. If he withdrew it, we'd not, as many have said over the centuries, we would not just drop dead, we'd be gone in an instant. You know, there's a, a scene in one of the Marvel movies where one of the characters is able to click his fingers and people turn into little dusty things. There wouldn't be that. There'd be, we wouldn't be there. Existence and everything associated with our existence would be gone. As the Lord of history, that means that when God wills some, uh, when something happens in the word, world, He wills it either by ordaining it or by tolerating it. So He tolerates a good deal of evil. Uh, We see this all the time. Um, And even when things, suffering and whatever happens to the saints, you know, they didn't blame it on somebody else. They, in essence, took it as coming from the hand of God, not meaning that God, you know, said, okay, let's dump St. Teresa of Avila in the creek, get her dirty, and see how she deals with it. Well, she didn't deal with it well, did she? Because she looked to heaven and said, if this is the way you treat your friends, it's no wonder you have so few of them. And this is from a saint, the doctor of the church, future saint, future doctor of the church. It illustrates the point for those who are holy, everything is from the hand of God. Mother Angelica used to sum this up in one word when asked questions, divine providence. That's what we're talking about here. In God's divine providence, there is both good and evil in the world, and he wants to turn the evil to good, and sometimes we are his instruments in doing that, and sometimes we are not. This is the case where the will of God is expressed in Pharaoh's refusal to do the right thing, but in this sense of toleration. But the Bible doesn't distinguish, because God is the Lord of history, and he foresaw what that's fair, how the Pharaoh would be. He didn't waste the offer of grace to help him out of that. He knew he wouldn't take it. And what happened? The rest of the history of the Exodus, the, the return of Israel of the Israelites to, to Canaan, and then the founding of the nation of Israel, and ultimately the coming of Christ, the redemption of the world, and all of that flowed from Pharaoh's uncooperation with the grace of God or uh, we might say uncooperation for a grace what God did not offer because he foreknew that it was wasted And Jesus himself said don't throw your pearls before swine and so he wasn't going to throw his pearls before feral the swine if you will so there's some subtlety in there but I think it's an important way of looking at these kinds of questions why is evil tolerated because he gave us free will, and in the end, he will draw good out of it. That good may be the punishment of evil. I'm sure. I'm assuming Pharaoh is not in a happy place today. And that that will always be the case. So, never forget, God is the Lord of history, and in our our times, which are so upended, and people are questioning everything in their civil society and ecclesiastical society. God doesn't want us to worry. Everything is governed by his providence, and everything will work out according to his will, even when it's simply his permissive will, which he's tolerated evil to bring good out of it.
1: And the flip side of that is also true. You just don't see it very often, and we may have only seen it once, quite frankly. But, you know, you you look at all the special graces that have been sto- bestowed upon Our Lady and the titles— and mm-hmm. the mediatrics of all graces and the reason that our lord was able to convey those graces upon her is because her will was perfectly conformed to his
2: that's exactly right and she's a witness to to the reality of the way god works in history and i mentioned mother i probably ought to mention deacon bill or two because this is also the flip side when everything in good hand mother would everything's divine providence with bill everything good that happened was thank you jesus and he looked at it that way and i'm sure he issued many thank you jesus for some of the bad things that happened to because that helps us to grow and that purifies us and that helps us to draw closer to christ who himself suffered a great deal during his life for us
1: colin have a great weekend you too on behalf of our host mr colin donovan our producer michael mccall our call screener matt gubensky and our social media maven mr jeff burson I'm Jack Williams thanking each and every one of you for tuning in to EWTN Radio. Uh, we get up and come into work every day because of our love for our Lord and our love for the EWTN Radio family. We're back at it again next week. Father John Trigilio will be in the house on Monday. Father Wade Menezes talking faith, family and fellowship on Tuesday. Father Mitch is in the house on Wednesday. Father Brian Milady, Dominican Father Brian Milady on Thursday and back around to Colin again on Friday. Until we get together Monday with Father Tregilio, have a great weekend and God bless.